A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. You join us for our fourth ever go at the best stroke worst ever football game. Once again, we've not given it a proper name. We hope you're enjoying that just as much as we are. We've got four categories up for discussion today. They are centre-backs, penalties, refereeing decisions and shirt sponsors. What do our panel think are the best and worst ever examples of those things? Let's find out very, very soon. Let's take you now into our series of remote recording facilities where I'm joined as ever by Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm thriving, thank you. I feel like I'm into the swing of this all now. Yeah, it seems to be like our new normal. I almost don't know how to go back to regular stuff, you know? Yeah, I'm a little bit concerned that when the opportunity uh, arrives that we can actually go out again, I'm not going to fancy it too much. I've got so much so much telly to watch. And I just don't know if I'm going to be able to like walk for, for as long as I used to. <laughs> I just don't walk anymore. <laughs> That'd have to be a slow return to match fitness. How are you, JJ Bull? Are you keeping fit? Oh, yes. Having a great time. Busy, busy. <laughs> Doing all the things. Good. Just finished live blogging and covering a, a FIFA esports tournament. That was good fun. Did you enjoy it? Was it? Was it? Did you find it fun to watch? Um, yeah. Well, sometimes you get. I, I get why people wouldn't like it, but I quite enjoy having been to one of these tournaments myself for work. Uh, they're genuinely, they're thrilling when you're there. It's so much tension, and uh, I, I I play video games a lot myself, so I, I'll get into it. But yeah, some of it was really good. Trent Alexander Arnold was the big name. Unfortunately, he got um, papped out of it a bit earlier than he should have done. But uh, great fun, yeah. The, the broadcast has been good. good as well. But yeah, there we go. Yeah, good. Completing our lineup today, we have, I'm pleased to say, the world's greatest man, Jim White. How are you, Jim? I'm very good, Tom. Nice good. to speak to you. Yeah, you too. What, are you keeping busy, Jim? Are you still in the world of sport or have you pivoted to hard news? Uh, I've done other things, but uh, I I went out for a, a a run this morning, and I noticed. I mean, what is this? Is this? I've I've lost all track of time. Is this the fifth week of lockdown, or the sixth, or whatever yeah, it is? I don't know either. Uh, but I've noticed that people are getting more and more wary of each other. So you go oh. for a run now, and 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 you know, uh, five weeks ago people would just pass you by. Now people take great loops to avoid you, diving into bushes to avoid you. People. <laughs> People just don't want to be in the same postcode as you, never mind uh, two metres away. 
Um, I'm not sure if that's because I've grown a beard in, in the uh, takedown, so they're all very <laughs> frightened of me. Yeah, I can't imagine. Can't imagine it's too frightening, Jim, but um, yet to see it, so uh, we'll reserve judgment. <laughs> Let's start off with today's first topic, which is centre-backs. Following on from last week's goalkeepers, we're going to gradually build the best ever team here. I can see it already. And we'll start with you, JJ. You've nominated your best ever centre-back. And you've gone for Virgil van Dijk, and I'm going to say it. I think there might be a bit of recency bias at work here. It is quite early to be calling him the best centre-back ever. Talk us through your thinking. Well said, Tom. Okay. So, um, if you're... I mean, the way I look at football is different to I mean, how some people might look at it. I think if you were to build a centre-back, like the way they look physically, the way they uh, play mentally, Virgil van Dijk is what you would build like if you were playing a video game he would have 99 of everything that you need as a as a centre back and just because it's recent and he hasn't won the World Cup for Italy in 1970 uh, doesn't mean he's not necessarily one of the greatest centre backs ever because I think people from people in history are often romanticised and people the minute they stop playing they're like oh he was amazing wasn't it a shame when they didn't care like the week he was actually fine. It's like when someone dies and then suddenly they throw him a state funeral when the week before they didn't they weren't even newsworthy. But I think Van Dyke <laughs> I think Van Dyke's amazing. The first time I saw him play was when he was at Celtic and you could tell he was a cut above. And I think the way he's gone to Liverpool and everyone who plays next to him suddenly looks like a giant as well. Like Joe Gomez is fine as a defender. Uh, and he has looked excellent this season alongside him. He's turned that Liverpool team into one that almost, or maybe has won the Premier League, they won the Champions League. I think he would fit anywhere. I mean, I know there's players in history who have won far more, like Carlos Puyol would be my other choice of, of history. And I'm not going to cheat and pretend I've watched Beckenbauer play or anything like that. But uh, yeah, so that's why. Take that. Yeah, I, I, I think you do have a decent argument if you take the view, which is that football now is better than it ever has been. So if you're well, of yeah. that mindset... Best current, best current centre back. I, I think you've got a potential argument to be made. There. Is it is it better think... now in the last two years than ever before? Faster, it's faster. There's so much more. Yeah, but I would argue this was like one of the worst Premier League seasons in a while, right? Why? But Why the, the, the general the trend the standard is, is incredible. I, I don't know, dude. I, I'm not sure if it's it's incredible when you compare it to. There has been years where it's like you're. Even in the Champions League level, it's been an exceptionally high level. I feel this one was just a bit mediocre from every edge. Like the even the big teams, is, the actual standard of the play is. I mean, it is genuinely a lot, lot faster. There is because of there having been so much football before. There's so much more knowledge behind it to be able to do more. So everyone's looking for that tiny little percentage where they can gain an advantage. And sometimes right, games are boring I... to watch because they kind of level out whereas in the past like if you watch games but I've been watching a lot of retro stuff to see if I can write articles on it recently and it's really slow some of it's nice but it's slow it's a different kind of game I wonder JJ whether it's because uh, uh, Van Dyke is so much better than anyone else around at the moment you know this is the era when Phil Jones can get a game for Manchester United at centre-back <laughs> so uh, you know uh, that immediately elevates Van Dijk, who I totally agree with you, is magnificent and a, a huge physical specimen, a, a brilliant thinker about the game and so on. But he's so far head and shoulders above anyone else. But does that mean that he's one of the greatest in history? I'm not sure. Well, I thought this. And the thing is that he'll be judged as one of the best in history when he retires in about 10 years. So it's just now he's in the middle of his career. We don't know. I mean, he might you know, 
fade away, whatever. I can't see it personally. There's players that I've seen that I put in there, like Cannavaro, Nesta, Maldini, <laughs> all Italians, obviously. Uh, I thought Rio Ferdinand was absolutely brilliant, and I remember watching him thinking he was great. I remember Yap Stam being in- enormous, just this absolute beast of a of a thing at the back of Man United's defence. But uh, in terms of a player you could drop into any era, and I suspect would be able to play in exactly the same way, I can see Van Dijk being as part of that Spain team who won the, the World Cup and the Euros. Uh, it's just different. He's not. A, it's not the same kind of leader, captain like Puyol or, or Ramos or something like that. But he's a different kind of centre back. That I don't know. He's great. He's got everything you need of a centre back. I think your point about being able to drop into any teams is a good one with Van Dijk because he's partnerships are obviously very important at centre back, and he's been brilliant with a, a, a wide variety of players, shall we say, alongside him. I mean, his his partners at Celtic weren't fantastic players. Uh, was alongside sort of Mashida and Font, uh, Yoshida, I should say, and Font at Southampton. Um, uh, and he's excelled wherever he's been with whoever alongside him. Yeah. The only thing is, is that sometimes I do think that because football is so well planned these days and you do have, you know, you, you do benefit from having a unit, from being so closely taught, um, from having like, you know, he's got a great goalkeeper behind him. They have very clear and defined tactics. So, he you know, he knows what the midfield's going to do and how it's going to help him out. Sometimes when football was a little bit crazier and you were forced to use your mind a lot more and perhaps not be so well trained, I think it's the element of unpredictability at the times that would make you a certainly a wonderful centre-back. I don't necessarily think it's having all the physical strengths, but also sometimes being able to be a leader or having the understanding of when everything's going against you, how to perhaps rally or if, if your teammates around you aren't of the highest level of how you can try to fix that, you know, like... And, and still shine and still be this great centre-back. I don't necessarily... Sometimes I think with football being so advanced, it's almost like a huge heads-up and a huge advantage for a centre-back these days because there isn't the element of unpredictability. Because if the team falls apart, the team falls apart. You're not always just looking at one guy who made a mistake at the back. Whereas back then, it was like... not. I'm not saying back then in like 1934. I'm talking about even maybe... 15 years ago there was a lot more unpredictability in the games and a lot um, uh, you know a lot more fluidity and sometimes it wasn't maybe as fast paced but you had no idea what was going to be thrown at you and it was different styles of football all the time and it was you having to adapt to different situations three or four times in a game and I don't know whether you can say you can drop them into any era and they'll be fine that's why I don't know the other thing I say about it is uh, having like, the very poor standard of Sunday League football that I've played. One of the things that uh, really helps your team and makes you have a far better chance of winning is having someone at the back who is just massive and gets rid of everything, but then is composed at the right times and you can depend on. And I think it can't be that much different at the highest levels if you've got a centre-back who you just know is taller than everyone, stronger than everyone, who can also play out from the back. And I, yeah, I mean, that's why I think he'd be good in any era. Jim, you have come at this question from a different way and nominated your worst centre-back of all time. Tell us about him. Well, my worst centre-back, who I've, I've actually seen live, uh, just 
because he only played a couple of times. Do you remember when um, Graham Souness was much mocked uh, for giving a run out to a bloke who claimed to be George Weyer's cousin uh, when he was at Southampton? Um, and uh, this was a, a very similar thing. It was at Manchester United and it was basically Eric Cantona's mate. Um, and uh, the d- d- Persuade, Eric Cantona persuaded Alex Ferguson to give him a, a run out. He's a guy called William Prunier. Uh, and I saw him play and he was so far off the pace. You know, I, I, you know, he, he, he looked, he looked worse than George Weyer's cousin, who, if you remember, got about 10 minutes, I think, for Southampton. He, he came on as a sub and, and didn't kick the ball and was immediately substituted off. Prunier was as bad as that. And what was extraordinary was that such was Eric Cantona's huge esteem at Manchester United uh, that the assumption was that any mate of his must be as good as him. Um, And the fact was, he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) He's an interesting one, Prunier, because I reckon everyone above the age of about 30 listening to this podcast, which... uh, you know, knowing podcast audiences and the Telegraph audiences we do is everyone. Um, <laughs> I reckon they've probably heard of William Pirinier, but he only played twice <laughs> for United. Why has his legend lived on to such a degree? Simply because uh, he was so bad, I think. Uh, you know, th- there is something to be said. We've talked about how fantastic uh, Virgil van Dijk is. We've talked about how amazing uh, those centre-backs like Cannavaro, Nesta, Maldini were in the Italian league and so on. Their their essence lives around. If you want your name to live on, be hopeless. But but, but be <laughs> hopeless. But be hopeless in 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 a prime situation. So it's no good being hopeless playing for you know some non-league side. Be hopeless playing for the then current Premier League champions. And an extraordinary <laughs> thought, really, that somebody as 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 woeful as that would get a game. Yes, uh, the legend of Prunier uh, <laughs> remains huge in all of our minds, and rightly so. What a wonderful stroke, awful bald man. Mina, you have, predictably as a fan of great defending, gone for your best ever centre-back. Tell us about him, please. OK, so I'm very much aware of the fact that the best Italian defender of all time, well, at least according to most, would be Franco Baresi. Um, he is just simply magnificent in every shape or form. And there's been so many from Paolo Maldini, obviously, Fabio Cannavaro. One of the things about Fabio Cannavaro is obviously he won the Ballon d'Or. Um, he made every person next to him look amazing. For example, the, uh, uh, the fullback for Real Madrid said that much of his career is owed to Cannavaro. But I went for Gaetano Chirea. Um And not because he was a sweeper, so it was a different role. It was a, you know, it was a Beckenbauer role. Um, and he probably wasn't as good as the German edit. But why I went for him is because he was sort of like the symbol of everything you wanted your team to be. He was, I, I know this is kind of weird because, you know, like now at the time of Corona, I just feel like having a guy on your team who's just such a good guy and a symbol of your national team, who's just this man who was the symbol of fair play, of class, of elegance. He was just this man who was so attached to Juventus, he was so attached to being Italian. Um, Like his dressing room was one he shared with Dino Zoff and they used to call it Switzerland because when you went there, everything was just so calm. 
Um, he would <laughs> like he, he was he was just this guy who his his parents-in-law bought him a BMW, and he never drove it because Juventus was Fiat, and never went out at night. Uh, would he, he never got red carded? He was just this guy that was so classy in his interactions, always there to help everyone, always there to protect everyone. Um, and there was just the story I, I remember that when they did win the Scudetto, um, so the league title, um, he went out at the time and uh, wanted to, well, went out with the boys and then wanted to buy a newspaper the next day to commemorate the occasion so that he'll always have something to remember it by. And he realized that the news agent was right next to a tram stop where Fiat workers would wait for the, for the tram to take them to the factories. And he was so ashamed of being able to have a job in which he made so much money that he just couldn't go through with it. Um, and just basically went back home and said, I'm not going to go out at night because look what people have to do to make a living and I'm not going to be that kind of guy. When you see this kind of stuff in comparison to how footballers act and even some of the best, you know, that have come after him it's for me he was just such a good guy he was he was such a nice you know symbol he obviously passed away um and Juventus named their curva so where the ultra sit uh, they, they named it after him and he's been a legend of Juventus ever since but other than that you know if I am just to talk about his footballing abilities he was this man who was obviously essential at the back line he formed a wonderful partnership that helped Italy won the, win the 1982 World Cup and he was like the opposite of Claudio Gentile, who was like this mad, you know, tough tackler, so rough. You know, Diego Maradona was like, he was following me to the toilet. He was so close to, you know, marking me. Um, but Gaetano Shirea was like this, you know, this guy who initiated attacks, was brilliant at defense, positioning was incredible. Um, but and when Maradona heard of his death, he said it caused me a lot of pain and it's been really hard to forget about it. Um, so it's more for his human qualities that I would pick him because I just feel like sometimes in sport you need that. Good shout, Mina. Mine is another uh, ball-playing centre-back and uh, it has also been mentioned previously by JJ and I am cheating by picking Franz Beckenbauer because clearly I haven't spent much of my life watching Franz Beckenbauer play in live football matches, but I tell you what, look at those YouTube highlights. He was amazing. <laughs> he <laughs> was. You've spoken, JJ, a bit about how slow football was uh, and I think it's it's surprisingly recently when you're looking back at old football that it, that it is obviously of a lower standard it's only about 20 years ago or so that you can spot a profound difference but if you go back to the time when Beckenbauer was playing and have a sense of the general standard and what was expected of a centre-back and see what he's doing kind of bringing it out of defence in this magisterial fashion and making these beautiful long passes to start attacks. Centre-back often thought of as just being a big head on a stick, being a big lump, a bit inelegant. He's the other side to that, an absolute cut above and uh, an uncontroversial choice is the best ever, but the one I'm going with. <laughs> Let's move on to our next category, which is penalties. And Jim, you've picked your best penalty ever. Tell us about it, please. Uh, well... My best penalty ever, I'm afraid, is uh, a painful one uh, for those of us of um, uh, uh, who support the England football team. Um, but it was still an absolutely glorious one. And it was in the Euro 2012 um, quarterfinal um, penalty shootout. Uh, and it was Andrea Perlo's uh, Panenka over um, uh, that uh, um 
uh, kind of prostrate, sad figure of Joe Hart. Uh, an extraordinary penalty, given the circumstances, uh, g- given its importance, and um, perfectly executed. Um, and also, you know, if you if you watch it again, look at how Hart is trying to get inside his head. Look at how Hart is grinning at him, jumping up and down on the line, using all these kind of attempts to um, out out flank him and uh, Perlo just rubs salt in the wound by perfectly executing the most demonstrably humiliating penalty for a goalkeeper to uh, concede it, it's quite extraordinary can I give you some background please do Mina no I was going to say at the time because there was so much flag that Italy were dealing with just before this match and everyone was talking about the fact that Joe Hart had studied all the penalty takers so he knew how to get inside their heads and he knew which way they were going to go and so at the time everyone was like Buffon have you studied everyone and he's like uh no I I don't usually and then it was like well we're going to fail I mean we're also really bad at penalties we're not as bad as England but we're going to fail and so Pirlo took it upon himself to be like, look, if he's so good, you know, if this guy is trying so hard to get into our, our heads, then we need to do something that will get inside his head. And he was doing all these actions, you know. And so he's like, I'm just going to penenka him and then he'll just you know, deflate. And, then, and, then, and that was what they were trying to do just so that they can get the confidence back into the Italian national team. I remember that penalty so well. Like, the way it suddenly felt that there was no way England could win. It was like... They are so much better technically, so much more confident that it that you, that won the entire shootout. That one, that one penalty, I thought. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it it felt that game that England were playing for penalties. They were just trying to contain Italy and get them to penalties, which, given England's record in penalty shootouts, maybe not the best idea. The thing I love about that from Pirlo is it is this quintessential expression of who he was as a player and his elegance and his coolness and. Is it fair to say Joe Hart has never really recovered from that moment? <laughs> I think you might be right. I mean, where is mm. Joe Hart now? Uh, he's on the bench at Burnley, is he? I can't remember when when he last got a game. And, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, as Mina was saying, you know, we, we assumed that he was the man who was going to transform England's penalty um, uh, shootout uh, uh, abilities and, and completely the opposite. Um, Pello, of course, uh, it should be remembered, um, missed a penalty in the 2005 um, Champions League final. So we'll just quickly remind everybody of that. Joe Hart desperately trying to put off Andrea Pirlo. But he's been the best player on the pitch today. Oh, my word, that's wonderful. Everyone applauds that. Uh, you mentioned Italians not having a brilliant record in penalty shootouts, Mina, and your nomination speaks to that. What have you got? Oh God, I have uh, Simone Zaza against Germany in the... um, God, that was the most embarrassing thing I'd ever watched, probably. What was it, 2016 Euros um, against Germany? And it was obviously Antonio Conte. And um, they they decided to bring him on really late into extra time. Um, It was like, you know, because, you know, Simone Zaza was going to do something really special on the penalty level. And he was this young and upcoming kid in Italy that was like, he was playing for Sassuolo and he, you know, possibly moving, you know, he, he was owned by Juventus. It was like this this whole deal about him and whether or not he was going to turn out to be something. And then he comes up to take his penalty and then, 
he just starts like doing the running man on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's just he's just he just takes forever and he's just running at the spot and it's like I'm exhausted just watching you do the run up <laughs> to the penalty. I mean, firstly, this penalty shootout was rather ridiculous because I just thought everyone was like not managing to do theirs. I mean, I think it took like a hundred for for Germany to finally win theirs. You know, everyone was was pretty poor. Um, Gaziano Pelle also missed his, but. With him, it was like the embarrassment of this run-up where you're just sitting there, like, running and running, and there was just all these memes of, like, chickens, you know. Um, that's what they compared him to at the time. And obviously, once he finally hit it, he blazed it over. But what I think is funny is that the whole time, Manuel Neuer is like, I know you're not going to get this in, so just <laughs> just do it already. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just, I just cannot imagine what Antonio Conte, who was the coach at the time, wanted to do to him afterwards in the dressing room um and I felt so sorry for him because he was ridiculed and he had to come out on social media and be like I'm mortified I'm so sorry I'm the first fan of the Italian national team like please forgive me but oh I don't know I, I feel like ever since then he's never really been or shown the kind of potential that he was supposed to have had Was für eine Nervenbelastung Sasa gegen Neuer yeah! Yeah, another cheery career-ruining moment there. Um, my, uh, my pick is like Pirlo in that it is another quintessential moment, which is an expression of who a player was. And it's Julian Dix who took a very frightening penalty at the best of times. But if you look back at the one he took in a brilliant game, a 4-3 win for West Ham against Spurs in 1997, I've never seen a penalty hit that hard. It goes, it's rising all the way. It almost just clips the very bottom of the crossbar just as it goes in. I don't know why more players don't do this. Just hit it as hard as you possibly can. Not so high that it's going over. It can't be that hard to judge it. Even if a keeper guesses right, he's not saving that. It's uh, you, Your hand will be broken by a ball hit that hard. Uh, I'd have Julian Dix very, very high on my list of penalty takers. I'd be happiest to watch for my team. He won't hit it softly. That's the only thing you can be sure of. A fabulous penalty by Julian Dix. Jeffers used to hammer them in with delight at that end. He'd have been proud of that kick. Walker comprehensively beaten. And West Ham are back in the league. What have you got, JJ? Uh, I've gone for a, a penalty that is, I just like it because of personal reasons, and that is uh, Adam Rooney scoring uh, the winning penalty in a shootout for Aberdeen in the 13-14 Scottish League Cup final. It was the worst game of football I've ever paid money to watch. A nil-nil. This is about 20-something years without any sort of form of trophy. The, the entire shape of Scottish football has changed so that there's no way anyone other than... Uh, Rangers or Celtic will win, every, will win the league every single time. But the Cups are still up for grabs. And uh, it's the first time I've ever been to a, a final that Aberdeen have won. <laughs> That's a nicer feeling than losing. But the, the thing with it was, when you haven't won a trophy as a, as a fan of a club for, for so long, I mean, 20-something years, and, uh, and the, the trophy before that was in 1995, and I was 10, so you know I wasn't really aware of it at the time. But... Uh, there's this huge amount of tension that that builds up, and you just you're just so desperate for it that it feels like you'll you'll never ever reach it. I can sort of identify with Liverpool's want to get this Premier Premier League title, 
and uh, the feeling when it all goes away and it's not even enjoyable to watch the thing of these games the finals when you support someone it's not fun to watch them it's horrible it's a uh, yeah yeah 120 minutes of just feeling Pain. like you want it to stop it's like being on a roller coaster and just hoping it doesn't smash the bits <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> the brilliant, the brilliant thing about that penalty, uh, JJ, as well, was that it enabled Adam Rooney uh, to to uh, fulfil his ambition and move from Aberdeen uh, to proper football in the National League with Salford City. So it was a real kind of uh, stepping stone for him personally as well. I mean, that wasn't even the last step because after that, of course, uh, he then moved to Solihull Moors. <laughs> oh, oh, a fine team, a fine but team. He was done by then. Have you ever had a penalty taken for your club that you felt complete confidence in? QPR had Hyder Helgerson for a bit, who took eight penalties for us, didn't miss one. And I looked at his career as a whole. He, he only took 18 penalties, but he scored all of them. And it makes total sense to me because he had this technique where he'd run up and just eyeball the keeper and just he'd wait for as long as possible, not like Simone Zaza levels, but <laughs> he would he would just wait to see where the keeper was going and just simply put it in the other position every single time. He was amazing. Have you ever had anyone like that for your club? Uh, Eric Cantona was quite good. Um, and, and that was largely to do with presence, I think. Uh, uh, but Dennis Irwin was also excellent for Manchester United and that was nothing to do with presence. So, uh, you know, it is... It, uh, mostly it's about hitting the ball correctly. And I, I, I go back to you uh, about smashing uh, the, the, the ball as hard as you can. I, I, don't, I don't understand why more um, penalty takers don't do that. It's, it's the Stuart Pearce in Euro 96 approach, isn't it? That um, having shown in the World Cup in 1990, the other approach, which is to hit it as hard as you can, so far over the bar that the ball's still in orbit now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like Ronaldo is probably really good at those. It's the free kicks that he can't seem to manage at all. <laughs> Although Lino Messi, though, for somebody who's so good, like you're never that sure he's going to score his penalties. So I don't know whether it depends on your talent or what it is when it comes to penalties or whether it's your confidence. Because Balotelli, who isn't the world's greatest player, is great when it comes to those. It's all about confidence, all about mentality. If you if you know you're going to score, you're going to score. But as soon as you have that... Um, if, if you are convinced entirely that there's no doubt in your mind whatsoever that you will score and then the keeper mm. saves it or you do miss, suddenly all these foundations you've built up over so many years of being a professional footballer are shaken and you don't trust the things that you have to rely on all of the time. Like I remember Alan Shearer just being uh, that there was no way he'd ever miss a penalty and then he missed like one or two and then suddenly when he goes up to take it, even watching it on TV, you're like, I'm not sure he's going to, he'll do this. And I don't have any confidence in any Aberdeen players ever to score them. (laughs) (laughs) Go beyond the headlines with The Telegraph's daily coronavirus podcast, a roundup of the latest news on the pandemic from our leading journalists with analysis on the impact on health, business and travel every weekday evening. Search coronavirus the latest on your podcast app. Let's move on now to our third topic, which was suggested to us by AFC Telegraph loyalist Robert Crisp. Thank you very much, Robert, for getting in touch with this one. It is the worst or best refereeing decision ever, with the caveat that it has to have happened in a pre-VAR world. Mina, you've gone for a game that I remember as the Didier Drogba rude word disgrace game. Remind us about the refereeing in that game and what he got so wrong. I feel like this is an image, like you were talking about a refereeing decision, but this was like a, an entire game 
of like bad refereeing decisions. It was 2009. It was the Champions League se uh, semi-final between Chelsea and Barcelona at Stamford Bridge. And that whole performance by Ovrebo, who has become, you know, forever remembered for that performance. It was, you know, I watched the, well, the highlights of the game yesterday again. And firstly, I forgot how Chelsea was so good. Um, but it's a match where you're like, I cannot believe that this is happening. It's one of those where I, you know, I don't care, obviously, at the time who was going to win. You know, I didn't support either team. But it was, firstly, it was such a good match. Two exceptional goals. Um, you know, SEN scores a rocket of a goal on the ninth minute. It's fantastic. Chelsea just looks so dominant, so comfortable, so confident of who they are. Um, 23rd minute, Florent Meluda, who I've completely forgotten about, um, taken down by Alves. And you're trying to figure out, is it inside or outside the box? For me, it was inside, but whether, whatever it was, they were offered a free kick, didn't get it in. Um, then 26th minute, I mean, you can, you can notice, I mean, it's literally one thing after another, an incident after another, one every 10 minutes. Um, so Drogba controls the ball fantastically, um, but he's brought down in the box. And it's Abidal, a clear penalty, like clear as day. And Robo just tells him to get back up. Nothing happens, you know, and he just, he has no idea what's going on. Um, they go, Barcelona's really angry with him just before halftime. It goes into halftime. We get back and Drogba collides with Yaya Toure, but you know, the penalty wasn't given, you know, did Toure win the ball at the time? You're thinking maybe, you know, maybe this was, uh, I don't know which way this could have gone. So you, you don't think about it. Then Abidal gets red carded for an incident perhaps that didn't deserve the red card like it did in the first half um, when Anelka seems to be taken down by him, but actually just kind of seems like he just tripped. And then of course, let's not forget the two handballs. PK, and you can just think at this point, and Alka's like, you're joking, right? Like, you're not going to give me this. Like, it's so clear that PK has handled this. Um, Iniesta then scores. Chelsea's so deflated. Like, they're trying to find a way back in. They just need one more goal. And Balak smashes it like he's taking a penalty with all his life, you know. But it, he just tries to smash it when they finally get a chance. And it hits Etta's hand. Once again, they look at Avrebo. He just waves play on and Balak just goes insane and starts chasing him down the length of the pitch, looking like he's about to eat him up because he's so angry. And I just remember watching this thinking, I, I, I have no idea how this is allowed to happen. Like, I don't know how can anyone make this many mistakes. And also, even if I didn't think that I made a mistake, just the sheer anger of everyone around me. Like, would this not give me any clues about the fact that I might have done a couple of mistakes? Or maybe let me just think about this, you know? But he he would just wave, wave, like, play on with such confidence at the time that I was like, what is, what is happening? And it was the Champions League semi-final. You know, this was Chelsea's chance to get to the final. Oh, my God. It was just, if I was a Chelsea fan at that time, like, you know, God help them. But Iniesta's goal, Essien's goal fantastic game honestly it's just such a shame with all these like uh, um i guess mistakes even barcelona were angry anyway that was for me my i think the worst performance other than 2002 against italy um that referee but yeah <laughs>
he did own it afterwards a little bit, didn't he, over Abel? I think he had the decency to say that it perhaps wasn't his best game. So, uh, you know, all's well that ends well. Uh, my nomination for this is another worst refereeing decision. I'm so disappointed no one's gone for the best refereeing decision, but anyway, <laughs> well, maybe we'll do that another time. But it's um, Thierry Henry for France versus Ireland in 2009. Another Scandinavian ref, yeah. Martin Hansen. God. Um, there is so much wrong with this, and um, we won't start the VAR timer because we've furloughed it, but this is a great argument for VAR for anyone thinking about like the injustices mm. that were possible in a pre-VAR world. Uh, he's offside for a start when the free kick comes over. Again, I think it might have been Maluda, so two mentions for someone Mina hasn't thought about since uh, the 2000s. <laughs> um, and uh, Henri controls it twice with his hand. The second one is one of the most blatant handballs I've ever seen. He almost carries it onto his foot and then tees up Gallas to score. This is just, it's such an outrage. You can feel the sadness, not only the anger from the Irish team, but the sadness that they've been deprived of a place at the World Cup by total incompetence. Um, it's an absolute scandal. And they, do you think Henri gets a little bit, it gets a little bit brushed over, doesn't it, in the assessment of Henri? He's just seen as this beautiful man now. Uh, it, awful cheat for that moment. Uh, shouldn't be forgotten. But there's the handball by Henri. And by the way, not just one George, but twice. It's actually hit him on the arm and then he's controlled it with his hand. Just watch it from this angle. Yes. And then he's not the back to Gallus and it's easy, but... Oh, That's a handball, no question about it. What have you got, JJ? Uh, well, um, it's technically... I suppose it, is it a technically post-VAR world? Anyway, there's no VAR in Scotland, and that is because if it were to be introduced, each game would take 14 hours. The standard of refereeing in the country is astonishing. It's to the point that it's genuinely funny. Uh, the one I've gone for, I've, I've got two that I'll go through very quickly for you. This season... For example, James Keatings, who plays for Inverness, Caledonian Thistle, was playing against Rangers in the semi-final. This is a cup. Keatings goes into the box, is clearly wiped out, like he's bodied out the way, and he goes flying to the ground, rolls over. The referee has deemed it a dive, <laughs> sends him off for a second yellow, which would mean he's banned for the final. It's a bad decision in itself. The referee's got it wrong. Now, they had an appeal, which everyone knew was going to be, they're going to reverse the decision so he could play in the final, because that's not really fair. They beat Rangers to go through. And uh, the appeal somehow i mean this is like telling this is like the peel aboard telling you that white is actually black uh kept the suspension up and then after everyone including gary lineker was retweeting it and putting pressure on them they eventually said we have agreed to rewatch um because some of our members basically what they admitted is that the people on the board didn't bother watching the uh, watching the appeal so you wonder how many of these things in the past have gone unturned. It's pretty shocking when you think about it. There's another good example from Scotland from 2018. Of a, this is good for fans of ghost goals. Chris Doolin, playing for Partick Thistle, scores a goal from inside the box. It's a busy penalty area. He boots one in the top corner from 20 yards and uh, hits the back of the net, bounces out. <laughs> and the linesman awards a throw-in. <laughs> uh, the throw-in, I mean, it's... The entire party of the team runs off celebrating the goal. They run near the halfway line. Then they turn round because the linesman is sort of standing talking to the referee. It's uh, if, you, if you look for Chris Doolin ghost goal on YouTube, you'll enjoy that one. It's uh, one of the worst decisions I have <laughs> we've, ever seen. We've got to do ghost goals another time. Maybe not best ever ghost goal. Maybe spookiest ever ghost goal. Spooky How about you, Jim? What have you got in the category of refereeing decisions? 
It's an interesting when you said uh, why we haven't got the best refereeing decisions because because the point about a best refereeing decision is it uh-huh. it it, mm. it it goes unseen, doesn't it? Yeah, of course you can't can't think of any that that have changed matches in the right way. They just happened because they've got it right. Um, my worst uh, is um, one that again, like you, Tom, uh, that VAR would have sorted out immediately, and it's hugely embarrassing for Andre Mariner. Um, uh, who is a man who doesn't look as though he takes embarrassment lightly. Um, Ch- Arsenal were losing 6-0 at Chelsea in 2014. Um, ball came into the area. Uh, it, it was handled by uh, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Andre Mariner sent off Kieran Gibbs. Not oh ideal. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember this. It, which sent cringes through most of those watching for obvious reasons. <laughs> God. Yeah, not, not a good moment. Let's move on to another suggestion from an AFCT fan. This time Christian Keen on Twitter. Thanks very much for this one, Christian, because it gives me a chance to talk about the best shirt sponsor ever. And <laughs> You know, people listening to this podcast might think, oh, you know, JJ leans on Aberdeen a bit too much, possibly. Maybe Tom, I'm not talking about myself in the third person, I think it's appropriate here, maybe talks about QPR a bit too much. But I think I've got a cast iron case to mention QPR here. And it's the 1983 to 1986 sponsorship of QPR by Guinness, which this is a beautiful football shirt in both of its home and away versions. It's a, The Guinness logo remains very cool, nice font speaks to itself in a very beautiful, satisfying way. You'd never change the Guinness logo font. It fit with QPR's fan base. There's a lot of Irish fans of QPR. There's a big Irish population from Shepherd's Bush. We've got this beautiful red piping around the blue and white hoops and this black Guinness logo working together in perfection. A beautiful, beautiful football shirt. Super cool as well. Uh, and JJ, you've, you've gone for a similar shout because it's also a drinkable alcoholic drink. <laughs> what, what is it? <laughs> Uh, the Newcastle Brown Ale logo on the 96-97 shirt, which is the best fo- ever football shirt, as we all know. The colours pop off of the black and white, and also there's a collar, and it was just very, very cool. And that is why Newcastle Brown Ale is my sponsorship of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing the theme, Jim, uh, you've you've got a beer story to tell us as well, but something else, same club. Yeah, um, yeah d- d- you mentioned Guinness, uh, 86. Sorry to mention this, Tom, but 86 uh, League Cup final, uh, they played Oxford United, who had probably the worst ever sponsorship on their shirt. Wang computers. It's not oh a great God. look <laughs> to have Wang across your uh, across your chest. Uh, still on the subject of, uh, of alcohol, um, uh, Oxford United were taken over in uh, 2018 um, by uh, a, a Thai businessman, uh, um, whose name is so long that I'm just going to call him by his nickname, Tiger. Um, and Tiger decided that uh, Oxford United needed an internationally renowned sponsor on their shirt. And he got Singer Beer, which is, you know, the best known Thai brand of beer. Looks great. Look really good on the yellow shirts, etc. Just one slight problem. Uh, uh, one of the issues that Tiger hadn't quite grasped when he took over Oxford United was that he didn't own the stadium. Uh, the stadium was still owned by a previous owner, Firoz Kassam, 
after whom it is named. And uh, Kassam had been in a real uh, sort of dispute with the with the club for ages. And uh, one of the things that he did was he maintained all the uh, catering. Um, and so he had all the contracts for the catering. And um, he had a contract with uh, Carling Beer. And he refused <laughs> to allow Singer to be sold at the ground. So there they were with a sponsor. I'm sure everybody at QPR when Guinness was sponsoring him could go and buy a pint of Guinness at halftime. We couldn't get a singer anywhere near Oxford United's ground, uh, which kind of summed up for me the absolute uh, disreputable, destructive um, thing where you don't have a ground owned by the club. You could get actually QPR branded Guinness when we were sponsored by them. My dad's still got a bottle. I'm not sure it's um, when he's kept uh, his <laughs> late. What, what do you mean drinking. QPR branded? What they, it actually had their name on the on the on the yeah. Label. It's like sort of customized QPR. Wow. Guinness. It's, so it had the wow. fixtures on the back as well. It's brilliant. Uh, but I don't know what you're talking about. The 1986 League Cup final, Jim. I think that was the one that was cancelled due to lack of interest. But we'll move on uh, to, to your uh, nomination for sponsor, Mina. What have you got? I feel like a 13-year-old boy with my decision. Um, this was the <laughs> <laughs> Lyon from France. Uh, their shirt. Okay, so let me tell you the story. So basically, when I when I used to go to Italy to do to cover the Juventus games, there was always a German journalist that was sat next to me, and um, and he always had this really uh, interesting style. Let me say, uh, he would wear like really crazy shirts or really crazy jumpers. Um, Name names, Mina. At, at like really inopportune times. No, he worked for a, like he he lived in in Germany, so he would uh, come in sometimes like Santa t-shirts. Anyway, and one of the times he came in with this retro Leon um, shirt, and it says Le sixty nine like pilastered in the middle and it's just one of those shirts that sort of makes you giggle like a 13 year old schoolboy. and so i'm not a 13 year old schoolboy, but i'm still giggling <laughs> yeah it's one of those because it is good to be fair. you can see all you can see is like look and then this giant 69 and like the heart of, of the jersey i mean it's a nice jersey it has like you know the, the french flag sort of is the collar and it's white um there's a red version too and yesterday when i'm you know like when i was like preparing for this pod I was like oh god I've got to figure out the year that it was from you know because I don't know so I was trying to type in Le 69 Leon yeah. that's a dangerous google Mina. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> that was what it was but it was also really hilarious to read the write-ups yeah because one of the guys who was writing writing about this is one of the best or worst I think shirts ever was saying that he looked up the sponsor Le 69 because that's what he, you know, he envisaged it was. And he was like, oh, so I think it's a strip club. <laughs> okay. So basically, um, from my understanding is that like, you know, like as in you have sort of department codes, like um, Paris is number 75 in, in, in France and Lyon is 69. So Lyon always has 69 because I, that's like the postcode. So it's 69, whatever, when you live in Lyon. Um, so their expert, their actual shirt sponsor at the time was Comerang, but it was just having all these people like writing about it being like, you know, were they sponsored by a strip club? But does 69 mean the same thing in French that it does in English? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I went, but the jersey is actually really, really pretty, especially the red version. So, and that was from 89 to 91. Um, and they just won League Two. So... 
definitely check it out if you have a chance. It's a lot classier when you think in France it's La Soissante Neuf. That just makes it sound a little bit cooler, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, slightly disappointed no one went for Pooh, who sponsored uh, Aisling yeah. uh, the, the jeans <laughs> brand, but a bit too obvious, maybe. That's your lot for this week. You can get your suggestions for next week into me, if you like, on Twitter, at Tom with an H Gibbs, or send us an email. afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk is the address. We'll read out the best of what you send us. It doesn't have to be a category suggestion. We'll take your correspondence in any form. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your pods. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons, and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.